Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Peter Beinart, a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Tuesday, November 7th, 2023, and I'm delighted to be here with Ben Rhodes. Ben is a writer, political commentator, and national security analyst. He's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, After the Fall, Being America and in the World We've Made, and The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. He's currently co-host of Pod Save the World, a contributor to MSNBC, a senior advisor to former President Barack Obama and chair of National Security Action. And um, I wanted to sit down with uh, Ben because uh, he knows better than almost anybody else kind of what it's like to be making American foreign policy in the middle of a crisis like this. And um, he has the kind of perspective of an insider, but also you know, someone who has been willing to share uh, share his perspective really openly uh, and honestly, even when, you know, he disagrees with uh, what some of his former colleagues are doing. And that's something that I've really appreciated listening to him over the years. Uh, so, Ben, thanks for doing this. No, thanks, Peter. It's good talking. To you. So I guess maybe just if you could just give a little bit of a sense of kind of like so something like October 7th happens, just a kind of a horrifying crisis, not just on a human level, but something that's obviously going to have massive implications geopolitically. I'm just kind of like, what's it like to be in right inside the belly of the beast of kind of White House foreign policy machinery when something like that happens? Well, it, it is a, you know, it's interesting in, in, in a job like that, you're usually going from crisis to crisis. Um, you know, your attention is consumed by things that are uh unexpected uh things that you don't control and yet every now and then there's something that happens that is a a different scale that you know everything is going to be different from that day on and so i'm sure that on october 7th as they got the initial reports um the first thing you're doing is trying to get your mind around what is happening uh trying to get as many facts as you can in a chaotic situation but then immediately starting to game out what's going to happen next and that basically means probably really intensive contact with the Israeli government. Everybody who has any contact with the Israeli government is in touch with them. And then that filtering out to the region, and we'll get to that. I think the one thing I'd say, Peter, that people might not appreciate, right, is these people were going to be doing other things. Um, so like Tony Blinken has probably mm -hmm. spent, I don't know, 90% of his time on this since October 7th. All mm -hmm. that is time that he's not spending on Ukraine or on other issues. Mm -hmm. Same thing would be true of probably his senior team of Jake Sullivan. So I think what people don't understand, it's both the amount of time that is going to go into this. Mm -hmm. And then it's the amount of time that you're not spending on other things that has to be backfilled by other people. This type of issue, well, mainly this issue more than any other issue, is even more intense because not only you're dealing with a, a foreign policy challenge, mm -hmm. it's an American political issue. Like, let's be frank about this. And so far more than other issues, you're probably hearing from constituency groups, from members of Congress, there's much more intensive media interest on this than most other international crises. And so this is an all-consuming event for the White House probably for the last month and for the senior leadership of the State Department and other agencies. And it feels like it's going to be that way. I mean, I lived through a couple of Gaza wars myself in, in government. This is just of a different scale. And so obviously pretty soon, you know, after the event, the U.S. has to start making decisions about what its policy is, right? I mean, it, you know, pretty soon afterwards, it was pretty clear the U.S. is the Biden administration's initial policy was, you know, we stand with Israel in their response to this this terrible attack, and we're going to support it. Basically, I mean that's that's evolved a little bit, but that was the initial 
kind of decision. Does, now, does that, is there some kind of formal process, you know, like a, some kind of principles meetings or present, or is it kind of more informal than that, than, than this, that one, that you get to this, this initial policy outcome? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting because obviously right after October 7th, your first impulse right. and requirement is obviously to express solidarity and horror at what had taken place. And, and anybody would have done that. I think just about any U.S. president would have done that. However, you're right that in the first, I don't know, between the attacks and Biden's decision to travel to Israel, mm. um, that window, which was a few days, a decision was made beyond just expressing solidarity in the, in the mm. attacks. Mm. A decision was made to kind of fully embrace Israel, mm -hmm. um, to have no public daylight between the United States and the Netanyahu government, to have the president of the United States go over there, which gives us a degree of ownership over everything that was going to happen after that, um, to signal that you were going to solicit a huge package from Congress. You know, th that was a decision, right? Um, and, 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 and I think that was a presidential decision, is, is what I feel intuitively. Um, mm -hmm. Because yes, there would be you know there's situation room meetings probably all day long. You know the mm -hmm. the, the main conference the situation room is probably filled with either the principals committee that's cabinet level people, the deputies committee which is the people underneath that teeing things up, and then working level people on these issues at other times, and they're probably teeing up options for different ways to respond. But that option is it's, it's kind of like a menu of things. You know what do we do here? You know who's who's talking to the Qataris about the hostages. Who's yeah. talking to the Egyptians about the Rafa crossing? Who's yeah. talking to the Jordanians about the West Bank? Who's yeah. talking about the Europeans about what they're doing? The, the, all these little pieces of uh, what is a much bigger puzzle. Mm -hmm. My sense is that Joe Biden sent a message down. It didn't come up. Mm -hmm. We are going to be backing Israel full tilt, full stop. Mm -hmm. um, and that that then kind of shaped what the U.S. government did around this. Joe Biden, you know, under Obama... Um, I think Biden sometimes felt like we, that, that Obama himself and, and some of his advisors like me, um, were in a different place than, than he might have been. Mm -hmm. It's not that he loved Bibi Netanyahu, mm -hmm. uh, although he often says he does. Um, <laughs> it's that Joe Biden subscribes to a, a, a view, you know, that, that Dennis Ross and others, I think, have, have popularized. Right. Right. The way to get Israel to do some, something is to hug it as tight as you possibly can. Right. And that by embracing Israel and having absolutely no daylight between you and Israel in public, you right. can therefore have some more influence with them privately. Obama was more willing to, in, including in past Gaza wars, criticize things publicly that he didn't like, that he saw the Netanyahu government doing. I think this this crisis was Joe Biden saying, I'm going with the hug Israel, hug BB approach completely. Mm -hmm. And basically the rest of the government's going to have to figure out how to run that play to, to get things done. Right, right. And and do you, it seems like the corollary of that idea is that if you hug Israel close, you kind of win credibility with Jewish Israelis, especially in this moment of trauma, then that gives you some space behind the scenes or whatever, maybe to try to kind of rein Israel in from doing things that you think might be d destructive or, or damaging. Do you, what's your analysis of how, if that's been the theory of the case of whether you think that they have been able to restrain Israel at all in um, as as part of this. If you think they've been they've been trying, sorry, um, I um, 
I mean, the short answer is I don't think that it's worked mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of uh, having much impact on Israeli decision making. Mm-hmm. I'll come back to that though because I'm sure that, I'm sure that they might disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want to say that there, there's a couple of reasons reasons why you might want to have some distinction between the U.S. and Israel in terms of policy matters. Um, there's the question of Israeli decision-making, which I'll come back to. There's also the global audience, right? right? And right. I think in the Obama years, part of what we had our eye on was, you know, we, we are going to be more critical if Israel bombs a school in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Not because we necessarily think that that's going to cause Netanyahu to stop doing certain things. Right. But because we want the world to understand, like, you know what, that's not how we would be doing things. Right. And right. so to me, um, my part of the calculus that, that I always tried to bring to these discussions was there's an audience in, in of Jewish Israelis. Absolutely. There's the whole world is watching this stuff really closely. Mm-hmm. And so the whole world now is going to associate the United States with whatever Israel does in Gaza. Mm-hmm. And that's, by the way, not going to change. I think that was cemented. You know, when Joe Biden went over there, he literally gets briefed by the war cabinet, you know, um, right. and certainly if we you know pass in a, a supplemental package. Right. Um, right. A, a lot of them and, are and weapons. Calibration, our weapons, right? Yeah. So calibrations around calling for humanitarian pauses, you know, the rest of the world isn't seeing that and saying, aha, see, they, they don't support this. It, um, so that that that's one, uh, you know, to, to those who might say, well, why wouldn't you just fully embrace right. um, the Netanyahu government in this in this instance? Um, because you're not going to affect them either way. Right. Um, that there's there's more than one audience here. Um, in terms of what the Biden people have done is what you can tell is that they they they. I think they did succeed. So I want to be fair here. I think that it felt like Israel slowed down a little bit after right. Biden went over there. Right. I think uh, I think he asked a lot of questions mm-hmm. um, that they didn't have answers to. Right. Um, and I think that they wanted time to try to negotiate some hostage releases through Qatar. I think they wanted time to set up some capacity to get humanitarian across, aid across the Rafah crossing. And they also just kind of wanted Israel to think through this ground invasion a little bit more before it went forward. And again, to be to, to be fair to the Biden people, th- that seemed to have happened. They got some very little uh, hostages out. Mm-hmm. They got some they got that border crossing at least mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. open, but they, they began to have some aid delivered in right. um, and, and, and before the ground invasion began. So I think that they did have a degree of influence. I think what they didn't influence was the fact that Israel's objectives in this military operation are fundamentally maximalist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the full destruction of Hamas, which is going to necessitate, as Netanyahu said yesterday, right. the basically the de facto reoccupation of Gaza um, and Israeli uh, administration of Gaza for an un- you know a, 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 a undetermined period of time, which runs directly counter to something Joe Biden said publicly. You know, um, and I don't, I don't, I, you know, I'm very sympathetic to the Biden people because Bibi Netanyahu doesn't really listen to anybody um mm-hmm. certainly not like the american president and so i don't suggest being critical of him would have made would have been better right except for the global audience i spoke about like i i think the you know at the end of the day netanyahu and this government are going to do what they i think want to do um with maybe some con- some openness to u.s suggestions around the edges mm-hmm. right. a little humanitarian aid in a little more negotiation around the hostages but fundamentally, I think what they've signaled is their intention to go forward with this military operation in, in any case. Right. It seems to me that one thing that made this 
moment different from past crises between Israel and Gaza was almost from the beginning, people saw the possibility that it could create a regional war that could even draw in the United States. And then, so the US sent in these aircraft carriers and I'm just, and, and obviously that seemed to be looming quite large, you know, I would imagine for the Biden administration set of concerns. I'm just wondering if what you think might the Biden administration might have been doing, what kind of conversations it might have been trying to have with with the Iranians, with the, with Hezbollah, even maybe through proxies, in order to try to avoid that ultimate kind of nightmare scenario. No, it, it does feel to me like that was like the top priority for American diplomacy in the first couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, so what the United States, had, you know, you sit in a situation room. And you kind of have a hierarchy, you know, what are we concerned about here? What, mm -hmm. what are we worried about? Mm -hmm. um, and I think like the number one thing in those mm -hmm. initial days was we don't want this to become a regional war mm -hmm. that draws in Hezbollah, Iranian proxies, and maybe even Iran itself. And then because mm -hmm. then the U.S. is in that war. Mm -hmm. And and so I think a lot, I bet the thing that they would argue privately that, you know, it's hard for them to argue publicly is it that we we're, we have succeeded thus far in preventing a regional escalation mm -hmm. because there was a deterrent message of all that, you know, those mm -hmm. aircraft carriers that went. But then you'll recall that there were these Iranian proxy kind of strikes on U.S. Mm -hmm. um, forces in Syria mm -hmm. and to some extent Iraq. And then there was a, an American airstrike on IRGC, Iranian Re Revolutionary Guard posts in Syria. There was this kind of messaging happening back and forth between the Iran and the U.S., that seems to, for the time being, have held uh, the regional escalation at a low boil. Mm. So Hezbollah's kind of been in northern Israel, but not really. Mm -hmm. And the Nezrallah speech, uh, the speech from leader of Hezbollah the other day, stopped short of saying we're going to come to this war. Right. And Tony Blinken's, you know, I'm sure in terms of the messaging to Iran, you know, the U.S. has some direct channels with Iran. But I'm sure that the other thing that, that Tony Blinken and others are doing is using everybody who does have a line into Iran to tell mm -hmm. them just mm -hmm. stay out of this. We don't, and, and to say we don't want a war, and neither should right. you. Right. And whether that's the, the Omanis, uh, whether that's Qatar, whether that's China, um, I'm sure that the U.S. has been really working hard to prevent that regional escalation. Now, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not certain we're out of the woods on that yet, Peter. Um, mm -hmm. And and you know, this thing could still escalate. Uh, mm -hmm. I think people keep failing to recognize that the worst may not be behind us. The worst is in terms, I think, of Hamas attacks on Israelis, you know, right. like, let's right. hope, obviously. Um, but in terms of regional escalation, I think, that, you know, this is still an open open question, and, and it's probably a, a, a top U.S. priority. Right. So this is obviously also, as you alluded to at the beginning, uh, an international crisis where there's tremendous American political attention. And there's been a lot of discussion, you know, in the last week or so about the political implications of this for Joe Biden's reelection campaign, right? Um, uh, it's a really, seems like a really, a no kind of a no-win situation for him politically. Um, it, um, I'm curious, like, in what ways, if at all, is there, is there, are there ways for people who are political advisors, who are thinking about the politics of this, of what it's going to mean for Joe Biden's ability to defeat Donald Trump, to engage in that conversation. Is, is that, does, does that happen at all? And if so, how? Yeah, this is, this is definitely a no-win situation. So mm -hmm. again, I want to preface everything with that. Uh, because as anybody who's listening to this podcast, uh, 
to make some judgments or assumptions about your listeners, you've all probably experienced in your own life that that there's no way to make everybody happy with sure. what you say about this issue. Sure. And and that's certainly true of the president of the United States. Um, that said, I, I do think, um, as with the decision to kind of hug Bibi out of the gate, um, you know, the, the, the message you said at the beginning kind of sets a tone. And the message that Biden sent clearly was, you know, the one of full solidarity with Israel, which was tremendously, I think, well received mm-hmm. um, in in Israel and and uh, among most of the American Jewish community um, and people who are supportive of Israel in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, you know, there wasn't much accompanying messaging um, to Arab and mm-hmm. Palestinian Americans, uh, Muslim Americans, uh, you know, younger voters who are who are uh, really deeply concerned about um, justice issues, in, mm-hmm. um, including um, obviously uh, civilian casualties in in Palestine and Gaza, um, and, and and so they they kind of I think are in a position now where they have a real political challenge on their hands. Which again, mm-hmm. like I said, they were going to have anyway. Um, right. Right. Now Obama had this. You know, Obama would often try to calibrate and, mm-hmm. and he did this recently um right. by you know speaking to all the narratives right, right? speaking right. to how everybody's feeling right and that usually um you would get us a, a bunch of grief on the right or from kind of aspect elements of the organized american jewish community like apac but you know it was possible for even people that thought we should have been doing much more to help the palestinians or mm-hmm. thought we were doing way too much for israel they could kind of look at obama and say I know that guy doesn't get along with Bibi. You know, I know that guy sees Palestinians. I know right. that guy um, believes that a Palestinian life is equal to an Israeli life or an American life. Um, and and so it created space to at least have conversations with certain constituencies. Um, you know, I think the worst thing that Joe, Joe Biden has said since the beginning of this conflict is when he said he didn't believe the Palestinian right. death right. count. right. And he didn't say, I don't believe the Hamas-run health ministry's death count. He said, I don't believe the Palestinian death count. Right. And and I think that that that, that, that speaks to a, a a lack of um of fully understanding just how visceral the the reason this is a political issue, I think, is that it'll affect the election if they don't address it. I talked to, uh, as you do, I think, Peter, I talked to a lot of Arab and Muslim Americans. I talked to a lot of young people. This isn't like a small issue to them, you know, because right. they see this as indicative of a broader yes, right, um, approach to politics and foreign policy and even domestic policy right. that doesn't see the valuation of the life of a Palestinian child. Um, right. And... Right. And so it's not just about Israel policy. It's it's right. about something bigger. And so I think what they need to do to address it is they have to speak very d- directly to why those people feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to find credible messengers to speak to mm-hmm. them because mm-hmm. it might be hard for Joe Biden to be that credible messenger. Um, and I'm not I, I I can't tell you exactly who that is, but they need they better find it because I think I, I'm not of the view that you know a year from now. Right. Um, you know, a, a young Arab voter in Michigan is going to be like, you know what? I was really mad about this when it happened, but you know, Trump's really bad, and so therefore I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. Uh, 
that's not the that's not the feeling I'm getting in talking to people. Right. Um, and so I think they've got real work to do um, to convince uh, pretty big chunks of the Democratic electorate, including the ones that they already were having problems with, young people and voters of color, that they don't just understand that they're mad. They understand why they're mad. Right. Right. It, it seems like, you know, Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, has, has been, you know, now doing, a, you know, running around the region a lot. Um I wonder to what degree, I mean, obviously you said that, 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 you know, the Biden administration was asking or Joe Biden was asking questions about what comes next after you go into Gaza and depose Hamas. Um, and I wonder to what degree, if you think the Biden administration is going to really try to invest in some political effort that would create some kind of horizon for Palestinians once, you know, after Hamas is is deposed. Like, I mean, they're now kind of stuck holding this thing, which they've obviously not really wanted to get in the middle of. And I wonder if how what you think they're going to try to do um with with that that they're that's now been kind of dumped in their lap in some ways. Yeah, I um yeah, I, I think that they're probably giving a lot of thought to this because I think obviously they're aware mm. the challenges I've identified beyond even just Israel Palestine right. is that if if this goes like the way it appears like it's going to go right you know a multi month Israeli ground operation in Gaza resulting in kind of an Israeli reoccupation of Gaza to some extent um, with a lot of civilian death there's going to be the political issues we just talked about at home but there's going to be real blowback against America globally, you know, yeah. this make everything else that they're doing harder from right. Ukraine. The global South was already checked right. out on Ukraine. Right. Right. And the right. message from the global South on Ukraine was, why do you care so much about these white right. people right. in Ukraine when right. you know, you don't seem to care about the things that we're concerned about? That was before Gaza. <laughs> right. Can you imagine right. what this is going right. to be like in yes. a few months? Yes. And so I think the administration, if they can't really have much impact on the except around the margins and trying to limit escalation, which is really important. I don't want to diminish that. They must be thinking what we're going to have to do next year is we're going to have to show a real political horizon for yeah. a Palestinian state, for Palestinian yeah. self-determination, for reconstruction in Gaza to, to kind of build back um, some yeah. credibility globally and maybe, you know, domestically with certain yeah. constituencies. I think that there, you know, the shortcut to that is... Mm -hmm can you get a massive Arab investment in, mm -hmm. you know, the Abraham Accords that kind of cut the Palestinians out. Can you kind of go back to the drawing board and do frankly, what should have been the Abraham Accords, which is, can you go to the Gulf countries and say, can you build Gaza? Can you mm -hmm. build a different Palestinian leadership? Mm -hmm. um, so that there's a, a coherent horizon. Mm -hmm. The challenge with that, Peter, as you know, is that Israel has to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, so this will require a lot of diplomacy to basically say, we actually want to build a different Palestinian leadership and a different Palestinian society uh -huh. that it, it creates a political horizon that restores dignity for Palestinians, that addresses the humanitarian crisis. Um, and, you know, you, you hear this in the administration's messaging, the two-state solution is kind of returned uh, as mm -hmm. a front burner uh, talking point, but they're going to have to persuade Israel. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, if Israel doesn't allow that kind of assistance to come into the West Bank and Gaza, and, and expresses no interest in ever having a Palestinian partner, 
um, then you then I then it doesn't really lead anywhere, right? And so I, I think, but I think they're going to make a real run at this because it, it, it's really going to implicate American interests here too. Um, if, if this goes the way it's currently going, I, I think people are underestimating how damaging it might be to to other U.S. interests globally. Um, uh, yeah. You can already feel Russia and China. Yes stirring pots i mean i honestly like peter i look at my own social media account mm -hmm. uh i guarantee you russia and china are in, in you know in the information space they want to yeah. turn us against each other they want yeah. and they're doing that globally and right. and so i think there's an imperative from a u.s interest standpoint i mean i i think we should be doing it anyway right um to really lean into trying to create a horizon for a palestinian self-determination and, and dignity yeah. No, I mean, honestly, you know, it really frustrates me, frankly, that some, you know, I won't mention names, but there's some very, very high profile Ukraine hawks who it seems to me are clearly smart enough to understand that U.S. policy towards Palestinians undermines Ukraine's cause because it makes America look like oh, such hypocrites. Right. And I wonder why those people maybe don't say that, you know, um, uh, because uh, it's just even if you don't care about the Palestinians, right? If you care about Ukraine and you care about the idea of America having any credibility, the idea that you 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 stop speaking when it comes to this issue seems to me um, really self-defeating. Um, but I had one last question. I, um, it has to do with what kind of space there is inside the highest echelons of US government in crises like this for essentially, frankly, moral arguments. I mean, I imagine you're talking about what people outside in the country are thinking. A lot of the, you know, imagine there are a lot of people inside the Biden administration, including maybe at high at high places who maybe, you know, in a quiet moment, maybe when they're back at home, if they ever have time, look at one of these shots of a building being taken down of children, you know, of, of 4,000 4, children think dying and thinking like, what is this? Like, why am I part, like, why am I part of this machinery that's doing these terrible, terrible things? Like, I didn't get into government to do this, right? Like, and I just wonder, like, is there any, you know, I know in policy, you know, people, is there any space to basically just speak in those terms in, in, in the foreign policy making process and basically just say like, this is not morally, this is just, this is wrong for the US to be basically giving the weapons and the political cover for this kind of stuff to be happening? Or does that immediately make you basically, you know, someone who's basically no longer taken seriously? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked. We just spent a minute on this. I mean, because there are different dimensions. Of this. So first of all, when I was in government, that happened on this issue all the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Like during the last Gaza war in 2014, mm -hmm. um, you know, the dynamic in the White House when this is going on is, is in this is the case in the Obama administration, mm -hmm. which was, you know, had a black president who was young, relatively young person to be in that position. There's a huge generational divide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so you're in the situation room, but you know, this is the kind of conflict that everybody has a feeling about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and and some people, you know, think that's unfair and that singles out Israel. But I mean, there's a reason why, right? I mean, this is three major religions have you know deep connectivity to this land. The U.S. provides over three billion dollars a year. To support the Israeli military, so it's not like we're some disinterested actor observing a distant war. Like we are a party to this, right? Mm -hmm. And so I remember lots of really intense. I would basically leave a situation room meeting, Peter, and come back to my office mm -hmm. and have a whole other meeting with a bunch of furious young 
you, you know, mm. uh, staffers mm. um, angry at me, even though I, in the meeting, I thought I was the one pushing the envelope. And then I come back and I've got, uh, I had Muslim staff and I, you know, young people work for me. I, I can't, I'm going to quit. Uh, I, um, we, how can we not call this out? Right. You know, they're on the TV screen. My office on mute is like a pile of rubble in Gaza. Right. And by the right. way, nowhere near the destruction of, of this, yeah. this latest episode in Gaza. And obviously nothing like the horror of the Hamas attacks. Yeah. And so, yes, there are a lot of moral conversations that happen. Um, my sense here is that this has probably been quite challenging for them uh-huh. because, you know, because because Biden, um, you know, there is a more there's a the same challenge we've all had in our own families and communities with this. There is a moral case that uh-huh. that everybody can make, you know, like the, the, the moral case that what Hamas did is absolutely horrific and intolerable and people should not be expected to live adjacent to a group of people that would do that to them is a very clear moral case that Joe Biden has made. Um, there is also a moral case that killing 4,000 children and bombing a refugee camp and cutting off access to food and fuel to children um, and telling people to move to the south of Gaza and then bombing the south of Gaza, that those things are not moral. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my sense is that um, there's probably a lot of inner turmoil um, there always is for people that work in the U.S. government during this time. You know, these are well-meaning people. Nobody, very few people, <laughs> if any, go into this line of work because they want to be a part of, you know, what we're seeing happening in Gaza. Right. Um, uh, and so I think there's probably a lot of of these conversations happening uh, behind closed doors or when people get home at night or in people's heads. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me. I wish there were more of it too, because mm-hmm. you can rationalize a lot of things right. uh, when you're in these positions. I used to do that. You can say to yourself, well, this is horrible, but it could be worse. You know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. we got 20 trucks into Gaza. Right. And right. and that can seem like a big achievement, you right. know. And and I even see, you know, see the administration presenting it, you know, thanks to US leadership, you know, 20 trucks got into Gaza or 100 trucks got into Gaza. And and you can feel right. understandable pride in that, right? Without realizing what that looks like, right? To basically everybody else, you know, who's looking at this and saying, "What? What about the you know, uh, two million people that that need right. a thousand trucks and right. need bombs to right. stop falling on them?" Right. You know, right. and so I actually I wish there was more moral debate. I I think people. There should be channels, you know, for dissent to come up, um, and because it, it, you have to be forced to interrogate not your performance against the worst case scenarios that haven't happened, but like the moral standards that you want to to hold yourself and U.S. allies to. And um, and 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 in this case, I I you know we could stand to have a little bit more of that. I mean, I I I hope that they're listening to Palestinian voices. Uh, I hope that they are, um, because that's the other thing is like, I, you know, is anybody talk to anybody like a Palestinian Gaza like that? Um, I hope that they have reporting on that, on what it is actually like there, you know, so that you're forced to kind of consider not again, not where you are versus like the worst. BB is really good at this, by the way, like mm-hmm. BB used to do this with us to some extent, you know, he makes you fear 
some even worse outcome, you know? Um, so that then the thing he ends up doing feels like not as extreme as like the thing he could have done, you know? Right. Right. Um, and, and I bet that's happening here a bit too. And, and so I, I do just hope, um, that there's space for those kind of moral conversations you're speaking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ben, thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. Always good to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, and I want to thank our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMVP website, fmvp.org, for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And you can also watch videos or versions of our podcast, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I'm Peter Bonner signing out until the next episode of FMVP's Occupied Thoughts. Mm-hmm.